Sequel Cast 2 and Friends is a part of the HyperX Podcast Network. Would you hold this, ma'am? My traumatons are acting up. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2 and Friends, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise, one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi, and this time we are continuing our look at the Toxic Avenger movies with the Toxic Avenger Part 2. He's tackling troubles from Tromaville to Tokyo. Uh, with me is Thrasher. I am the bee. Mac. With cheese. Yeah, and uh, Alex. Hey, I had a lot of fun with Toxie Part 1. I don't know if that's true for Toxie Part 2. Very good. Yeah, Toxic Avenger, you know, the first one came out in, uh, what was it, like 85 or something. This second one came out in 89, and it's it's really... Yeah, this is sort of a classic story of a filmmaker films so much footage and they decide to split it into two separate movies. Um, yeah. I don't think it's that obvious with this movie, but when you see next week's one, it, you can kind of see some kind of reused footage and it, the, the well, plot of the third one just comes across as sloppy, but we'll get to that next week. Well, Troma, with this movie, Troma kind of became a victim of its own success because Toxic Avenger was a mega hit on late night cable and on home video, both rental and and purchasing. And it was so it was so big that at a film festival, Lloyd Kaufman made a joke about doing a sequel and then was immediately sort of assaulted by like phone calls and distributors like you if you're doing that sequel you got to get us in on the ground floor because there were lots of people who wanted to be part of the toxic avenger business at that point and what ended up happening is he said since people were making offers to get into the sequel on the ground floor he lloyd kaufman michael Hurst decided to make it uh and not only were there so many people like wanting to throw money at this movie but Lloyd Kaufman and Michael Hers being both over writers and over shooters ended up just deciding to take their sequel idea and split it into two movies, which were sort of most, for the most part, filmed back to back. Take that Peter Jackson. (laughs) Uh, And, and, and that combined with the fact that trauma at this point was still trying to play nice with mainstream film distribution these both of these sequels ended up getting compromised and they're both very very strange beasts yeah strange beasts indeed it this felt like it had enough material like what we see in part two i feel it could have been one and a half good movies and then it's just was Mm. almost too much of a good thing um but i i'll wait till we get into more narrative uh beats here before i get into my spiel yeah, and, and you get a scene in this one. I mean, you did have some action in the first one, but in here the scenes just seem to go on and on and on. And, and on and on. It, and it, on. Right, and if it was maybe a third of the length or, or something that, that, uh, with the action scenes, I think you could have had, I don't know, a tighter movie or even connected the two movies in a better way, but we're just going to focus on, on part two here, really. And there, there's already some some changes right off the bat. Um, the Toxic Avenger looks a bit different. That in itself is not uh, so much of a surprise. You know, the technology advances with the robot-controlled eye. Sometimes it looks like you see kind of like seeping blood behind the one droopy eye, which which I kind of like. Yeah. And uh, and the voice of, of Toxie is different. And I would say less funny. It almost sounds more like a Disney thing. When yeah, the talks. voice in the first one was hilarious because it was such such a departure from like the from the from mm-hmm. the toxic growl, and then to like the I'm sorry, ma'am, here's your shirt, you know. It's it's strange because 
the uh, the new the new voice for Toxie is is one. That's another thing that ended up getting like compromised because the original actor who was going to play Toxie on the first few days of shooting like proved to be quite the asshole, and then he like went on vacation without telling the crew. <laughs> so they were set up and ready to film stuff, and he could not be found. And then he just showed up after a three day weekend, like, okay, let's get back to this. Uh, and so they ended up replacing him with his uh, stunt double who played Toxie for the rest of this, for, for the rest of two and three. Uh, and. And but that he has kind of this innocent voice, and when you, it kind of works when you realize that in this movie, Toxie is supposed to be sort of like college age. It kind of works that he has this kind of like, aw shucks, I'm I'm bursting out into the world sort of voice. But it but it is a weird contrast compared to the super deep voice from the original film. Oh, the original film was funny though because it felt like so common it felt like such like a normal voice like it wasn't like the the batman voice or anything like that you know it was just like kind of nerdy and you do have like that everyman voice in part two which i think works as well but i think it just worked better in the first one yeah the contrast with the voices i think was was funnier in the first one and this one it's just a lot of narration too and, and part of it oh, yeah. is um, as it says in the poster, you know, they did go into Tokyo and filmed a lot of this in Japan. And when, when they, uh, had actors cast for these big roles, they, they were told they can speak English and then on set, that wasn't exactly the case. So they had to be redubbed and, <laughs> and everything. And when stuff like that happens, I think, you know, what if I got a part in Japan? I'd be like, yeah, hell yeah. I speak Japanese. Mm-hmm. Well, I will. I will say at least, at least in like, uh, like Japanese movies, if there's like an actor like who's who only speaks English, they don't seem to mind having him speak English. Like in Godzilla: Final Wars, where that badass oh, yeah. general only speaks English, and he's like one of the leads. Right. Um, I oh, think too. You know, talk- in, in, yeah. Go on. Oh, you talk about the the dubbing, and that and that just leads to some to some weirdness because there are there are scenes where they will cut between the characters speaking in their own or the actors speaking in their own voices and then the dub voices, and it is very jarring. And they don't play it for laughs like they could have, which might make that uh, a, a lot more enjoyable. Instead, it's just well, they're speaking English now, so I guess we got to throw in a dub. And sometimes they like the like the guy, uh, the one of the main villains, Big Mac, uh, the, who when, when he's dubbed, he is dubbed by Michael Hers, and Michael Hers gives him a very interesting voice that syncs up really well with the way his lips are moving, and it's a it's a really interesting performance. But then um, the uh, young woman who helps Toxie out while he's in Tokyo, who is being dubbed by uh, by uh, Kate Kaufman, uh, Lloyd Kaufman's wife. She alternates between having this ridiculous, scratchy, like young Marge Simpson cartoon voice <laughs> and an outrageous Japanese stereotype voice. And and I wish they could have picked one, and I wish they had picked the Marge Simpson voice. So interesting note, once we get to Japan, um, Big Mac is played by uh, Rikia Yasuoka. And if I can geek out about him for a second, because his mm-hmm. filmography oh, yeah. goes all over the place. Not only was he in Black Rain... He was also in Tampopo, um, Ridley Scott's Black Rain with Michael Douglas, a gaggle of Takashi Miike movies, including Graveyard of Honor, Izo, uh, Yasuru Hasabe's uh, Stray Cat Rock Sex Hunter, one of the last Satoichi movies, um, a couple other Miike joints, uh, Kinji Fuku, no, not Kinji Fukusaku, Hideo Gosha's uh, Violent Streets. This guy's got a bitch in fucking filmography. And um, the irony, though, is that his English is pretty good. I have a feeling, like you were saying, you said the dubbing matches up pretty well. I bet he was speaking English, but they just thought they'd get a better dub after the fact, which would probably explain why it syncs up so well. Well, yeah, yeah, because like he's clearly speaking English, uh, and and I can only assume that they just they either didn't bother filming sound on location or or the sound came out terrible. And, which is a shame. I would love I would love to hear like what his real performance was. And actually, he's a singer as well. Mm. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, he it, it, did a little bit of everything. With the dub, what you're saying about the dub thresher, that brings to mind, there's that uh, infamous early Schwarzenegger movie, Hercules in New York, where they eventually did release the version with the uh, Arnold's audio track. Uh, 
So never say never, but I mean, among <laughs> the other things I found while trying to look at this movie, at least it's on the Troma now streaming service. They had this uh, making of. Unfortunately, it's entirely in Japanese, so I didn't watch that much of it. Um, but it, of course, opens with all the gore shots from this movie and the first movie, and uh, has all these subtitles in <laughs> Japanese everywhere. They didn't. You think they'd subtitle it in English, but they didn't because that's a bigger expense than people think it is. So, oh, but that they have it is uh, an interesting curio. Yeah. So, looking at Toxic Adventure Part Two. Uh, the beginning, another big change, a different actress. You have Phoebe Laguerre as uh, Claire. Also, the girlfriend has a different name in this one. And it's a much more cartoonish performance. And you have all these goofy sound effects everywhere. Yeah, uh, um, they kind of over, they lean too hard into that. And it kind of takes it. I mean, I expect a requisite level of silliness, but it just kind of, is there's silliness, then there's the cartoonishness, you know, and it kind of leans too hard into that. It, well, it's so fascinating because it is a very cartoony movie, and yet it still has all the 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 trauma gore. I honestly, I love Phoebe Legere as Claire. I think it's a wonderful performance. I love that. I love that Toxie's love interest is just as over the top as he is, uh, and she just she just has these these great like affectations that she brings to the performance. Yeah, and like I don't mind a little um, anachronistic like casting and stuff like that because there's these movies are self-aware enough to the point where it works to your benefit. You know, it's like, hey, you look different from before. <laughs> um, and that's what I enjoy about Troma and in, in the series so far. But the first act with the bombing of the School of Blind, like he just starts kicking these dudes' asses, and it goes on for like twenty minutes. Well, they well, I, and all, it's also one of those things where I think, like, I'm sure in the script it just said Toxie fights some thugs, mm-hmm. but on set they kept coming up with all these. Like, they had a couple of like kills they knew they wanted to do, like Toxie punching the guy's face and his head explodes in a shower of gore, and Toxie squishes the guy into a basketball and dunks him. But then they have like. But then there's stuff that they clearly came up on the day, like Toxie is surrounded by people and they shoot each other. Toxie's surrounded by people and he just like rapid fire punches them. <laughs> and and it's all set to it don't mean a thing if you ain't got that swing, which is a really weird choice, but I kind of like it. I kind of liked it too, but it just, does anyone else have anything to contribute? Because I felt like it went on forever. No, I agree. It goes on for too long. You have kind of like the clown car thing of so many of them coming out of the limo. And uh, some of them are actual clowns. Some are actual clowns yes. as well. You're right. And it, I think part of the, the trouble is that it's set outside. There's less, uh, excuse me, interesting business for them to do uh, as opposed to, you know, the, the fight scene in the fast food place in the first one or some other stuff we get later in this film. Yeah, it doesn't it really just take looks, advantage of the environment. Like it doesn't it take advantage of the environment. And you, you kind of expect them to get to get to Japan already, and it just it, it's sort of the cheesy synthesizer music for some of the stuff. It just, yeah, it, it I don't think it's a great start. On the other hand, Troma movies are all about excess, and they're going to try to use every bit of footage they can. Well, there right. is there is one very significant thing about this this fight scene in this movie in general. Uh, it is the cinematic debut of Michael Jai White, who would go on to play Spawn in the Spawn movie in the 90s, and who is the creator, producer, and writer and star of Black Dynamite. Oh, nice. Yep, and Michael J. White also did the fight choreography for the, the stuff uh, they shot in the United States. So it's a... Yeah, really early stuff for him, and it's it's fun to see uh, a young Michael J. White running around there, getting in the action. But I so, think like, the thing with the uh, yeah. like the fight scene and stuff like that is that it's like that fine line between like going overboard and like that fun, indulgent, trauma way, and then just like just not gratuitous, but just overdoing it. If you took that twenty-minute scene, broke it into two ten-minute scenes, and and changed the locale, a la the first movie. You know, like we go to the restaurant, we have a scene, we go in the alleyway, we have a scene, we go into the so-and-so, and you're just in the same locale, and it's just like, oh, my God. Um, well, actually, it also speaks to one of the weird side effects of Toxie 2 and 3 being a bifur- being part of one big bifurcated movie uh, is that... Like, there's not enough fight scenes in Toxie 3. You could have broken this up and put some of this fight scene in Toxie 3, and it would have added so much gore and energy to that movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. 
Right. And then after this fight scene, you get this another kind of scene I think is a bit too long, this exposition with uh, Apocalypse Incorporated, which they're sort of the big bad of Toxie 2 and 3. They're this uh, corporation that wants to, um, you know, uh, destroy, use the toxic waste for all kinds of environmentally bad reasons. And you have these very enthusiastic actors often sweating, screaming about what their plans are. Uh, I mean, their headquarters is pretty cool. That does give some production yeah. value. It looks like it's a church or something. That was a court. That was a that was a county courthouse in New York. Oh, is it okay? But it, it, yeah, it's a big, it's, you know, locate. It's a big location that you get a good sense of space. I mean, they use it well, and it looks like an evil lair. And it's just so great seeing Rick Collins, who plays the chairman, on that balcony, <laughs> giving these speeches about how they need to exploit Tromaville and destroy the Toxic Avenger. He almost looks like like a low rent, like like younger Tim Curry, almost. Like I get, I, I thought that a I, bit with the beard, with some of the expressions. He yeah, he really you know throws himself into the role and is uh, is having a lot of fun. Basically, good acting makes you seem like Tim Curry. <laughs> In a trauma movie, yeah, that's true. Uh, so you you get uh, eventually parts of the plot mentions uh, Toxie's long-lost father is in Japan and uh, a, a bad guy posing as a psychologist. Well, it, it is to, his to psychologist. Go to Japan. Yeah, but who's very unethical, who, who Apocalypse Incorporated have bribed to trick Toxie into going to Japan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was Great. an inciting incident to get him to Japan. Because I, I remember, I'm like, all right, we're in Japan now. How the hell did we get here? <laughs> it was it was to find the father. But that's where did the father incitement come from? Was that from the Evil Co. or Apocalypse Incorporated? Well, well, it was part of the. It was part of their their plan because they they because they were bribing his therapist. They knew that he had some father issues. And they needed to get him to Japan because that's where their Japanese branch was working on the anti-traumaton, which is, <laughs> this is where they start really building the toxic Avenger mythology that continues through all of his media incarnations is that the, is that the force that give that compels him to seek out and destroy evil. It's not just an instinct, it's subatomic particles called traumatons. And in Japan, they're developing an anti-traumaton to nullify Toxie's powers, but... The anti traumaton is too unstable to send to America, so they got to send Toxie to Japan. But also, and, sending and, Toxie to Japan makes it so uh, Tromaville has nobody to protect it. That's also there, too, yeah. So Apocalypse Incorporated can move in. Over the course of like a long weekend, they can take over the town, which I kind of <laughs> like. But we also, I just want to point out like Lisa Gay plays. Uh, plays uh, Mona Malfair, who is sort of the right-hand woman of the Apocalypse uh, Incorporated chairman. And she's great because she really sort of... It's, it's weird. She can be camp and completely natural at the same time, which is a very unique skill. And she's a real B-movie mainstay. She's in Class of Newcomb High 2 and 3. Uh, she's in... Uh, uh, I think it's called like... Oh, she, she's she's in a... She's in a independently produced horror movie from near where I... That was made near where I live called Stash, where she plays huh. a character's alcohol, horny alcoholic mom. Huh. I think it's... She just lights up the screen whenever she's on there, but she has this great, like, speech. Where do you go if you want the best in science and technology? You go to Japan and <laughs> keep in mind, this is coming on the sort of this movie's coming out kind of on the tail end of America's love hate relationship with Japan. Yeah. I remember that like throughout the 80s, every other like there's there just all these conversations about um, either amazing technology coming out of Japan or, or or how dare Japan crush us in the international marketplace. Yeah. And it was also reflected in our movies, too. I mean, I just referenced Black Rain, but there's all these, like, East-West cop movies. Um, you know, oh, yeah, what was it, the one with Pat Morita and Jay Leno? Yeah, and, um, you know, like, Rising Sun, uh, Last Year of the, uh, Year of the Dragon, Black Rain. Um, fuck, there's a bunch of other ones. I, Collision yeah. Course, that's the one. Yep, if you want Collision to see course. Pat Morita and Jay Leno as East-West cops who mm, team yeah. up to fight crime, you watch Collision Course. You had that. I you also that. had things in the culture like uh, Steven Seagal, Chuck Norris, and Ninja Turtles. I mean, kind of, you know, the Good building, yeah, building on some of the uh, 
the Bruce Lee stuff, but also just with the, the technology and everything uh, and Nintendo and stuff being popular. Uh, I think it might have been, was it Nintendo that bought the Seattle Mariners? Or if not, it was some Japanese company, which was a big yeah. deal at the time. Um, and you had a lot of, uh, frankly, kind of racist portrayal of Japanese people in, okay. uh, in, in a lot of these movies and books and stuff. Um, so, but I think that Toxie is kind of a, an innocent in Japan and he's very polite. And I think that that's something that sort of surprised me. I expected the portrayal of the Japanese to be a lot worse. And I think, uh, Lloyd Kaufman's a respectful dude, but also it was, it had a lot of Japanese financing. So it, it gives the toxic Avenger a much different flavor. I think that's welcome when he gets to Tokyo. Well, I, that's that is something that I think this this is truly amazing and beautiful about this movie, uh, and and I think it's it's actually for a number of factors. Because remember, Lloyd Kaufman majored in uh, in like a Asian studies and Asian philosophy in college. Like he, he's very he does a lot about Buddhism and Taoism and, and whatnot and and are, already has kind of some intellectual connections there. Um, but when they when they go to Japan. It's a very street level view of Japan that you really don't get in any other movies. They go to real places that would that you would never see in another film. Like any like think think of any movie you've seen in the last 10 hell last 20 years. It's an American film where they go to Japan. They typically go to like the most high-tech part of Shibuya uh, and stay there the whole film and then leave. But we're seeing we're seeing like local fishing communities. We're seeing real markets. We're seeing arts districts. We're seeing parts of Japan you never see on film. When it's an American film, you'll sometimes see them in Japanese films, and it, it's it's just great. And I love how Toxy seems to naturally fit into all these places. What I love too is that, like you said, we get some like rural kind of like off the map uh, locale. But one of the best shots, and I'll say a very brilliantly framed uh, establishing shot is uh, Toxie right in front of Tokyo Tower, which is a huge landmark. And also, um, it, was, it, gives, it gives you a good uh, bit of dialogue when he's like, am I in Japan or is this France? Oh, because it kind of resembles Eiffel Tower a little bit. Yeah, and the fun, well, that was that's actually deliberate. Like, to Tokyo Tower was built because kind of Japan wanted its own sort of Eiffel, Eiffel Tower. Tower, yeah, exactly. It wanted a similar cultural landmark. Uh, it was the kind of built by their own hands. It's really fascinating. But we and we get and we also get some fascinating like actual like Japanese uh, Japanese actors. Like you, you know, you've already uh, you've already talked about uh, Big Mac, but uh, uh, Somoto Sakine, who uh, is a big who's a, a big uh, Japanese television and radio personality, who shows up, who crops up all throughout this film. Uh, Lloyd Kaufman in the in the uh, audio commentary refers to him as like the David Letterman of Japan, and I can mm. kind of get that. Like he, like I could imagine if you were to dub his voice, I could imagine Conan O'Brien dubbing his voice because <laughs> they seem to have kind of a similar like deliver delivery, shifting between completely deadpan and completely goofy with no transition in between. And he does kind of pop up everywhere, which is kind of a fun uh, running gag there. And I, I do like how in the action scenes in Japan, you it, it, they just have kind of a different flavor to them using some of the local things, especially there's a, a shot that was uh, always in the trailers for this where he tries a, a taiyaki, which is a kind of, um, they have these kind of snacks all over Japan, but it's like a, a, a sweet bread uh, kind of it's filled like with a bean, bean paste. paste. Yeah, with the red bean paste at Zuki. Uh, I've had um, moonbeam pies, which are kind of like a variation of those, and they're fucking yeah. delicious. Mm -hmm. And in this scene, he takes like the, the fish mold for this thing and, and uses it on a guy's nose, and it's a really neat and horrific effect. Oh, it's it's a great kill. Like like we, we you know like the creative kills we didn't get in the opening fight scene, we get lots of creative kills in Japan. And the makeup looks terrific too. Like the the, the fish, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and imprint is on his face is really well done, and it looks like in the best tradition of like um, the gore makeup in these movies is that like it looks painful and it's like funny as hell. Um, it's a good <laughs> it's a good sight gag, and it's also you know it looks painful and yeah it's funny as hell. And then I'm thinking I'm like okay this is the movie, just stay in Japan, make it a Japan thing, you know, just, yeah. 
we should have we should have gotten here you know 10 minutes into the film and then um yeah and i feel like this is the movie at its best and then you know we kind of spin our wheels for a little bit and we do some sumo wrestling and like like you were saying earlier um matt and thrasher like it's uh you think it's going to veer into not being very respectful, but it actually is pretty respectable. And um, it's a, it, so many gags you can pull from all this uh, stuff, and they do a pretty good job getting that. Yeah, I, I guess like I really feel like the only thing that isn't like respectful, uh, the 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 young woman who kind of becomes Toxie's guide in Japan, uh, Masumi, who's played by uh, Miyako Katsuragi and is voiced by Patricia Kaufman. Really, it's it's just the outrageous stereotype voice they give her is really the only sort of disrespectful thing in this movie. Every everybody else is everybody else just seems truly celebrated. Oh yeah, there are some like stupid captions too, where she's like, "Holy California roll, check that out." Yeah, that's a running gag where they'll say "Holy <laughs> something," and it's always like it's always a, a Japanese food item. Right. Oh, and I, I like to to blend in with the scenery. Toxie uh, gets the Japanese haircut, like Beatles kind of bowl cut thing, and a business suit. And I want a business card. <laughs> yes, and a business card. Which I think, I, there is an address on the card. I think that was Troma's office address at the time. That's awesome. Oh, but so something else I want to talk about, and this, this is where this movie gets a really personal connection to me. Um, so, and this is a, there's a, a band Troma got connected with when they started appearing in Japanese film festivals, and that's Go Nagai, who was one of the founders of the Big Tokyo Film Festival that, where, where they would show a lot of their, a lot of their movies, Class of Nukem High, Toxic Avenger in particular, and who had a lot to do with them getting distribution in Japan. Go Nagai is a fascinating figure. Uh, if you, if you like anime, you owe him big. Uh, because in the late 60s, early 70s, Gonagai was a manga creator, and he had a lot to do with bringing sex and violence back into manga. Uh, before World War II, there was sex and violence in manga, and that got pretty heavily tamped out. But Gonagai brought the sex and the violence back, brought in adult subject matter, brought in a new, ushered in a new era of hyper-violent superheroes. He created, among other things... Mazinger, which has a lot to do with bringing, making giant robots popular. It was released in America as Transor Z, and I used to watch it all the time when I was four. So I've been watching this guy's stuff since I was a kid. He created Cutie Honey. He created Devil Man. Uh, and he started his own animation studio with his brothers, and they produced a lot of anime based on his stuff and other people's stuff. And he, I love that he plays himself in this film and he gets business to do. And it's very true to him because he has cameos in the stuff he makes. That's awesome. Yeah. He also, um, he did stuff with uh, Kentaro Miyara, who did uh, Berserk and then the director of uh, Tokyo Gore Police, uh, oh, yeah. Yoshihiro Nishimura. Yeah, he's all over the place. I mean, he's, 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 he is a big deal. Without a doubt. So, like, he he really is one of my biggest influences and idols, and I love that he's in this film. And this this is where we get a, a big contrast between the way Troma works and the way another studio works. Uh, because there's so many uh, comic book films out there, every now and then, one of the comic creators from Marvel or DC shows up in a movie. And it's usually someone in the background, and usually, like, the hero waves to him and says, oh, hi, and maybe says their name. They never have business to do, except for Marv Wolfman at the end of the Crisis on Infinite Earths CW crossover. He gets a little bit of business to do. Yeah. But, like, Gona Guy has a, he has a full role all his own. I wish we could get, I wish we could get that here. I wish, I, I wish the movies weren't embarrassed by the creators of the comics they're based on. I wish they could show <laughs> up and do some shtick. Doesn't help either. You have credits uh, that'll say like based on the Marvel comics, or just kind of these kind of weird credits that don't specify the original creators all the time, because uh, a lot of the things were work for hire and so forth. That's a whole other topic. And just to drop this, if you've ever seen a like based on the comics created by, and you get real people's names, the only reasons those names are on there are because of a series of lawsuits. <laughs> very very often carried out by the creator's estates after they died like that's that's why you yep. see bill finger's name on batman stuff because of a series of posthumous lawsuits 
That took years and years, and there's a great uh, documentary on Bill Finger on uh, uh, Hulu. In a world with too many comic book podcasts and not enough deep dives into your favorite superheroes, one podcast stands as a shining beacon in a world of pain and darkness. Yeah, yeah, darkness. Yeah, lots of darkness, bunch of dark stuff. Superhero stuff you should know. That's us. Andrew, why are you talking like that? I'm the movie voice guy now. I'm the new movie voice guy. And it's time for you to listen to superhero stuff you should know. <laughs> uh, so we have like unused concept art, unmade scripts, unmade superhero movies. All check us out at superhero stuff you should know. Ben, you should do a movie voice guy voice guy voice uh, i would but i think we're out of time superhero stuff you should know part of the hyper x podcast network part of the hyper x podcast network i just said that hi we have a podcast where we go to podford university a fake college where you wait wait, wait it's fake yeah what I just paid tuition. I same. I did too. To who? Uh, well, we're doing the ad. Let me finish. Find Podford University available wherever podcasts are sold, and on the HyperX Podcast Network. New drop incoming. Get to the drop at HyperX.com for storewide savings. HyperX is fighting the battle against inflation with deep discounts across all categories of HyperX gear. Head there quick, though. Once March ends, so does the madness. It's the HyperX Loot Drop 2 going on now at HyperX.com. So so in the Peacemaker series, in the final episode, in the credits, there's like a special thanks. And in the special thanks, he lists, uh, James Gunn lists every writer, DC Comics writer and artist that had a big hand in creating any of the characters that showed up in the movie. And it's great. It's more comic book names than you have ever seen in any credit sequence before. And it lists Jerry Siegel, but it doesn't list Joel Schuster, which is weird. Interesting. Those being the two creators of a Superman. Yes. Yes. And, so, and, and that, and I want to know the story behind that. Did did his family's lawsuit lapse or something? Anyway, that's a tangent. Maybe we'll have an answer in a future episode. Stay tuned. Hey. Could be, could be. Um, you know, I think of, of some of these these gags in Japan. I think the one that I found, they're noticeably, I would say, less less gory in, in some sense than um, what we see with the stuff filmed in New Jersey. But you get this extended scene in the radio station where he turns this uh, lady into like a, a radio transmitter. That's oh, just yeah. really disturbing that, that to me, just all the different pieces crammed into her. And yet they can still, uh, the, um, the kind of radio host guy that, that runs through the film is able to get a, a signal through all this stuff jammed in her body. That's just this, to me, pretty horrific body horror, even though it's not like as, as goopy, perhaps, as a Cronenberg film. It's a Tetsuo the Iron Man moment, but like, yeah. What makes it work is the outcome is very cartoony. We get some great mugging from her when she's all cross eyed with the wires in her. But like, what makes it seem so horrific is we keep getting her POV with Toxie like driving in different like audio leads. Uh-huh. And, and Toxie really sells jamming all this stuff in there. Uh, Alex, what did you think of sort of a fight scene later in the film when they're using like fish, a swordfish as an actual sword? It was it was goofy, but I mean it had its it had its charm for sure. Well, I like when he fights all the Japanese henchmen in that extended fight scene because well, one, it's a kinetic fight scene because he's always moving from one connected environment to another, but every like assassin that he fights has a gimmick and it's like, it's like right out of a video game or like, or like crying Freeman or a similar type of like yes. manga where like, you're just going to fight a series of assassins, but each one has a gimmick. So there's like the claw hands, clown assassins. There's the cross-dressing Japanese schoolgirl assassin yes, who has like great that. choreography. Yeah. Uh, and there's some funny butt stuff in that, uh, you know, the, <laughs> the, the fish assassin. It's, it's delightful. <laughs>
and then you're also using the environment a bit with the the action and these kind of uh, alleyways and, and parts outside of the the main city. You, you do get you know some of the the shots of like the the parks and the government district and and so forth. But it, like you're saying, Thrasher, whenever stuff is in Japan, they'll show that really famous uh, crosswalk in Tokyo that has like I don't know like 14 streets that all cross with each other. Uh, or, or the same establishing shots. In this, they, they do kind of go out of the way to different parts of the city. You do get to see a uh, uh, a bathhouse. Um, oh, and that's which... got a fun kill. The, like, the, the, cow, the cow guy, he, <laughs> he throws into a bath, turns up the water really, like, heats up the water with his radioactive breath, cooks him alive with noodles and vegetables. <laughs> yeah, well, yes. you see him throwing, like, radishes and carrots and shit in there. <laughs> yeah, tr- turns them into a ramen bowl. I, that's yeah. delightful. That's one of the most creative kills. I really like it. Yeah, definitely. In the meantime, you get some scenes that cut back to uh, to Tromaville, and it just seems at this point it feels like a completely different movie. The stuff in Tromaville. And, yeah. and you're right, Alex. Whenever it goes to Tromaville, uh, the pacing kind of slows down, and they're really trying to get you to not like these uh, apocalypse people, but they already did that in kind of the opening monologue scene where you see them having the office meeting. So it's kind of, um, you kind of wish the story would would have started and and finished in Japan, frankly, because there's a whole bit near the end of the film with uh, a a chase scene that doesn't seem to end. Well, it's it's full of a lot of, the chase scene is full of a lot of like gags, but it's, it's the chase scene should probably be, would, be in the middle of any other movie. It's just like Chachi comes back to America and, and they, well, we need one more fight, one more threat, uh, an assassin with a bomb strapped to him on a motorcycle. Who's going to crash into the Tromaville County courthouse. Right. And, and like really, honestly, the best part is that he commandeers a cab, but in the cab is an old married couple who are having right, an yeah, argument about yeah. whether they're going to go to the French restaurant or the Chinese restaurant for their anniversary dinner. And it's just so fun hearing them gripe. Like, like in uh, it's like in high anxiety when Mel Brooks and Madeline Kahn pretend <laughs> to be an old Jewish couple to, like, yeah. to, to annoy their way past airport security. It's that kind of argument, but it's really delightful because it's a real old married couple. Uh, yeah. Like, um, <laughs> Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Once we get back to the states, it's like you think it's just going to be an end cap, but then we get this whole thing, and again, it's like, oh my god, we're back to Tromaville, we're going, we're still going. Um, yeah, this this is like, I mean, the first one was like eighty nine minutes, like bing, bang, boom, have some fun, wrap it up, we're all done. And then you know what? Like, this this chase sequence with the Dark Rider that should have been the opening action set piece of the third film. Yeah. Because this film should have ended with Toxie leaving the the Sumo Academy. Because because that's because Toxie's whole thing is, eventually Toxie tracks down who he thinks is his father, Big Mac Junko, uh, who is you know the, who's like this big gangster and a part of Apocalypse Incorporated Japan, uh, and he releases the anti traumatons which rob Toxie of his power. They have a bit of a fight. Toxie turns a fish monster into sushi. That fish monster will show up in later Trauma Productions. I love the way Big Mac Junko is defeated because he there's this guy like chopping fish in a restaurant that's <laughs> not that's watching the fight and and Big Mac ends up falling on his table and the guy without ever making eye contact with him just chops Mac Junko <laughs> Big Mac up and it's brutal. It is yeah, that was good. phenomenal gore effects. But because Toxie sort of like lost his powers, he's nursed back to health at this sumo academy. And they teach him like these like real sumo fighting arts so that he can be like a better fighter. And they're playing Amazing Grace. It's it's a nice moment of like, it's it's a, it's a strangely calm, meditative, nurturing moment that you really don't get in any other trauma film. That would have been such an interesting note to end the film on, but it doesn't. We got to do this chase scene. Yeah. And the chase scene, you know, it is an, an expansion, I think, on, on what they did with the first film. A lot of similar uh, shots inspired by the Road Warrior, a.k.a. Mad Max 2 and all that. And yet, with all that going on, you see... Uh, excuse me. Oof, you see um, kind of these same landmarks. I mean, I liked one little gag where the, the Dark Rider gets in his motorcycle and he's humming the music score. Da, da, oh, yeah. da, da, da. That was sort of <laughs> funny, but... 
right? But it, it goes so long, you just don't care. And the Dark Rider is not like a real character that you have real skin in the game. So you don't even care when he, he dies that much. But it does have a really dumb, happy ending where it turns out, oh, uh, uh, Troma or Toxie's father was in Tromaville all along. Was well, he wasn't in Tromaville. Like, he just, this this old guy in, like, a Philip Brush suit with a huge handlebar mustache shows up. Yes. And it turns out he's the real uh, big, he's the real Big Mac Junko who they never they never we never find out why he disappeared from the life of Toxie or Toxie's mom. He just shows up and he reveals, oh that's not Big Mac. The man you fought in Japan wasn't Big Mac Junko. That's Big Mac Bunko. He ruins my credit rating. And like it's so tacked on. I feel like Surely in the original, like, one movie script, there was a bit more with this guy. Oh, you, you know hope how... So, yeah. so, you know how in this one he's called Melvin Junko, but in the first movie he's called Melvin Ferd? I mm-hmm. finally found out why his character changes names. Why? So, why? Okay, so Melvin Ferd was a character that used to appear in Mad Magazine, and he was named Melvin Ferd at the beginning of the first film, just as kind of like a tribute to Mad Magazine. But when this movie was made, Toxie had become so big, like, oh, if we call him Melvin Ferd, Warner Brothers might sue us. So they Uh, changed to Melvin Junko. (laughs) Aha. And then they changed his... They changed his girlfriend's name to Claire to have synergy with the Marvel comic book and the animated series that was in development. Because I noticed a couple nods to Mad Magazine. Like, you see him stepping over one in the beginning. Oh, yeah. Mad's a big influence on them. And Mad reciprocates. Nice. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, so, I mean, overall, Toxic Adventure Part 2, I think it's better when it gets to Japan. But, um... I guess because of the different flavor of the Japanese sequences are, are just barely enough, I think, to make it better than what came before with the intro that goes on forever, with the, the fight scene that never ends, and, and kind of the, the ending I don't think is very strong in this, but the Japanese stuff is interesting enough where I, I think I'll barely give it a sequel yes, um, Alex. Um, I was I was tempted to go a sequel no, but I think talking about it um, revitalized my uh, affection for the film but at, in the moment though i was kind of like man this is going on forever if this movie was 20 minutes shorter i think we'd have a real effective film um mm-hmm. like but uh hi, 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 hi. uh this is a hard one i'm gonna have to say like a barely qualifying sequel yes i th- this is this is not a good movie but yes, I yeah. enjoy watching it so much. Uh, there's so many things to love about this movie, particularly when it's in Japan. And I do like that Toxie does have a real arc where, like, not only does you know he learn how to really fight and not just be a brutish superhuman monster of uh, a superhuman size or hideously deformed monster of superhuman size and strength, but in the end he proposes to Claire. So like he grows up a little bit, which I, I rather like. And this is you know right. an arc that'll continue in the next two films. This is this is not a good movie, but it's an entertaining, not good movie. I am going to give this, and despite all that, I'm going to give it an unqualified sequel, yes. Very nice. Cool. Well, now we can go on to... Um, do you have a scene for this one, Thrasher? I looked and I could not find one. You couldn't? Okay, that's fine. So let's, let's go on to uh, what you're watching. Um, I saw something that just came out recently as of this recording... Uh, it's the ninth film in a series. It is uh, the new Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's on Netflix. Oh, is this the latest one? Yeah, the latest one. Yeah. Oh, it just okay. Came out two days ago on Friday, and um... nope, we're not going to pitch a sequel this time. Okay. But um, thanks for asking. But yeah, but for the the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. The new one, uh, I like some things about it. I like that the plot is really minimalist. Uh, some of the other stuff goes too much into the family lore, I think, to its detriment. In this one, it, even though it takes place present day, it um, has kind of a simple story and goes from there. Uh, it is sort of funny, though. The credits run uh, 10 minutes, so without the credits, the movie the movie's length is only like 76 minutes. Like It's really, really short. And it makes me wonder if we'll get an extended cut someday or um, Netflix picked us up after the film is already completely financed and everything. So 
uh, whether we'll, they'll do more, I have no idea. They have some of the other Toxic Avenger films on Netflix, but just sort of the more recent ones. And uh, this is a series that almost every sequel is kind of a remake of the first one. <laughs> so it, it's it's frustrating in um, that sense. But this one kind of takes a page out of the more recent stuff where it's, you know, the killer is very old. And they bring back, uh, in this case, they bring back um, the, I think, Sally, is that it? The survival or the survivor from the first one um, is a character, but not played by the same actress, unfortunately, because that original actress is dead. But uh, really good, uh, clever kills in this. I think it's well shot. It looks pretty. Um, the acting is, is good. And um, a lot of people are trashing this, and I'm not quite sure why. I, I think they just sort of, everyone wants the first uh Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and you're not going to ever recreate that. Never Even though that remake I thought was pretty good um, from Platinum Dune several years ago. Oh, the one that was like in the early 2000s? Yeah, yeah. That one was with Jessica Biel. That one wasn't bad. I couldn't get into that one, but um, mm-hmm. I'm, uh, I'm, a, I'm a chainsaw, Texas Chainsaw nut. I love these movies. Um, but yeah, I'll have to check this out. I mean, anything in the franchise I've, I've been drawn to. Do you have any strong feelings about Leatherface Thrasher? I, you know, it's funny. The only, I know I've seen at least three movies in the series, but the only one I have any memory of is the first film, partly because mm-hmm. I watched that, I think about two years ago, right before the beginning of the pandemic. Um, it's a series I would love to cover, actually, because I, I have, I, have know, I, I believe no, I've no, seen no. Texas yeah. Chainsaw 2, like on late night cable but for some, but I just don't remember it, which is weird for me. I tend movies tend to stick to my brain, and I've heard that one is nuts. It's fucking crazy, and it's got that Uncle one Dennis. is has yeah Dennis Hopper and a big part in it. Yeah, it's oh, it's the movie where Dennis Hopper plays a raving maniac. <laughs> I know, funny. Huh? There is it down, yeah. Uh, Thrasher, what have you been watching? All right, so I watched the uh, latest M Night Shyamalan effort, Old. And... Oh, that's right. That was a movie. Um, so it's a like cheesy aging effects or was it scary or what did you think? No. Well, okay. So it, I, I hate to say this, but it's, it is a typical sort of Shyamalan movie. Uh, the first two, the first two acts are really good. It's yeah. uh, overall pretty well written, marvelously directed. We get good performances. It's very well cast. Uh, it builds a lot of atmosphere, uh, and regrettably, it all kind of falls apart in the third act. Um, but, I mean, the premise Shocking. is, like, you know, multiple families have gone to this, like, Caribbean island for a vacation. And they all get together to have a picnic on this secluded beach. But when they get to the secluded beach, they get trapped there, and they all start to age rapidly. And and basically, like, over the course of 48 hours, th- these, like you know, all the adults sort of age into old age and die and all the kids age into middle age. And it's, it's really neat. And like, it, it it really wears its themes on its sleeve, which I think in this case really helps. I mean, it's like the, the best twilight zones don't obscure what they're about, but, but they don't flat out tell you either. And, and this movie kind of goes much the same way, but in the third act, uh, because it needs it, it, the film needs a climax, and while doing the climax that offers these characters an escape from their fate, it also tries to explain itself. And it's the explanations don't help. Like they make they make sense, but like we don't we don't really like it doesn't help. It doesn't. It just does not help the 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 movie, and so the third act kind of becomes a, a rather boring slog, which which is a real shame because justice is done. It turns out what's happened to this family, these families was very, very deliberate. And, you know, justice is done to the people responsible. But by that point, I'm just too bored to care. Yeah, it, it, it ramps up and it's um, like so many Shamamalamalam movies. Um we get some good stuff. We get like two, like two thirds of a really, really good movie, and then he does the typical pull the rug out from beneath your feet. 
And then just kind of go this a little too further, and it's this unearned, like unwarranted, um, like depth. But it's like he's trying to substantiate his own movies, you know. It's like, no, this is for real, you know. And then it kind of takes that away from it. It's like if you just stayed, if you were just a little more superficial, your movies, I think, would be better. <laughs> it's it's Did, also. Um, it, it's he also, act in this one. Pardon? Did he act in this one? He, yeah, I believe, yeah, he does have a cameo. I yeah. believe he's like, he, he's like, uh, he's, he's one of the guests or, or at the, or no, I think he's like the concierge at the hotel. Yeah. Like, he checks the family, the main family in at the front desk. And there's been kind of a Shalomasans too, since, um, Split. With, uh, The Visit I thought was really good. Yeah, I still need to see that. It's it's one. It's like if you if you like Shyamalan movies, you you probably will like this. If if you are sort of on the fence, uh, you, you may end up feeling like I feel, where it's great up until that third act. Uh, and although I will say it's based on the novel Sandcastle by Pierre Oscar Levy and Frederick Peters, I really want to read the book now. Oh, something that is unintentionally hilarious. So something that's part of this movie is that most of the characters all like have like a medical problem. Uh, and there's this one woman who has like, like a brittle, like, I think it's like brittle bones or something like that. And there's a bit towards the end where like, because of the, the way that the aging effect affects you on like the cellular level. So like her bones will heal as soon as they break. She's like thrashing around in this cave and her body keeps getting more contorted and twisted. And it unintentionally looks just like the death by bonitis that the eighties guy has in Futurama. <laughs> bonitis. Uh, my only regret is that I didn't cure my bonitis. <laughs> And it's also one of those things where the movie has a sort of logic hole where like, you know, so they're trapped on this beach. You think, oh, you're on a beach that ages you. You could just leave. But they're trapped there. But like. They 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 could just be locked in, but instead they come up with this convoluted read like essentially like when they try to leave, they pass out. And they come up with this theory, oh, it's like when you're underwater and you rise too fast. If you rise too fast, you know, you you pass out, like you get these, these health problems. And nobody considers, well, let's just do what divers do, go out a little at a time. Mm. <laughs> like if you just walked, like they, by the time, when they have this revelation and every other thing they speculate about turns out to be very literally true, that they have more than enough time to get everybody out alive if they just like did it slowly. <laughs> but the characters like get really resigned. Well, I guess we're trapped on this aging beach. Yeah. Oh, and also it's like, who has this special skill? Like, Tom, you can climb. Jane, you're good at jumping. Yeah. Uh. Oh, and there so. is um oh there so oh Aaron Aaron Pierre is in the movie. He does a re- he has a really great performance. But he plays he plays a character. He's a hip hop artist named Midsize Sedan, <laughs> which that which is that's the that's the perfect name for a parody hip hop artist. Yes, it really is, and it really it really jumps out. Like, mom, that's Midsize Sedan. <laughs> so, so that that bit's a bit a bit unintentionally hilarious, but it, it's it's just it's 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 one of those things. I think if this movie wasn't pursuing its big reveal ending uh, and just kind of ended it like a bittersweet thing of the characters sort of ex- like uh, either uh, like the way, honestly, I feel like the way it probably should end is that the last, the last, the last surviving characters attempt their escape, but we don't find out whether they escape or not. And we never find out why this is happening, but it does the opposite. And, and I think that's it, which is, it's a real shame because it is a, so it is so well directed as a movie. M. Night Shyamalan knows how to direct. Oh, without a doubt. He's got a great eye. He knows his way around a camera. He knows how to fill a scene. It's just like I was saying, I think he just feels like the need to like add like a no it's like he he's like he's doing that like um I'm not making just a horror movie kind of mentality. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, I'm making a statement. It's like, no, you can just make a good horror movie. Like that's, that's what the visit is. And I think it's pretty, well, he likes great. leaning into the statement and making all these scenes of characters 
explicitly explaining what the theme is so no one gets confused. Yeah. Towards the end, and it's just it's sort of irritating. But I, I just, all that said, I did want to see that movie, so I think I will check it yeah, out. I still recommend that, said. Yeah. Uh, and uh, Alex, what have you been watching? What the hell have I been watching? I've been trying to catch up on some 2021 business, and I ended up watching Being the Ricardos. Oh, I need to see oh, that. Right, on yeah. Amazon Prime. How is it? So, it riddle me this, right? When I watch a David Mamet movie written by David Mamet and directed by David Mamet, I'm excited because I like David Mamet. Now, when I watch an Aaron Sorkin movie written by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Aaron Sorkin, I'm not as excited. You're cautiously optimistic, would you say? Uh, cautiously optimistic. Um, it's it's such a it's such a weird dynamic because you know when when writer when very famous screenwriters begin to direct it's a hit or miss and with Sorkin it's been more miss than hit. Um, it was a semi miss with um what was that Jessica Chastain movie uh, Molly's Game. Um, it was a kind of a foul ball with uh, the trial of Chicago Seven. And being with Ricardo's, I'd say, is probably the best of the three so far, which is not saying too much. The thing is that, so Aaron Sorkin write, writes everyone like they're just on a one-way ticket to Clever Cleverland all the goddamn time. And when he's directed by other people, he checks it. It's checked. And when he's directing himself, it's it's Sorkin unchecked. What, what I've what the the best word I've heard for like the way he sort of his writing and directing dovetails together is that he's making competency porn. Yeah, he you know he's writing a script like he never got invited to anyone's birthday party. <laughs> it, it, it's basically every character is saying like, so take that. You know what I mean? Like everyone's smarter than they let on. Everyone's got like, you know. Can basically it, it's like a it's like a freaking you know like a Clark Gable movie but like you know done with like millennial savvy dialogue. Um, it's quick talking, fast going, very clever, don't you know? And then I'm gonna say something for, that you're not gonna expect. Like go fuck yourself. <laughs> it's like it's very 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 rapid, um, intentionally repetitive, but uh, it helps that you've got Nicole Kidman, Javier Bardem, J.K. Simmons, Nina Arianda. Um, Aaliyah Shawkat, Jake Lacey, Ronnie Cox, uh, John Rubenstein, like, you know, it's, everyone's in this, of course. Um, it's enjoyable. It's watchable. I, I enjoyed watching it. If, like, I visit my mom and she goes, ooh, I want to see this, I'll stay in the room. But um, I don't know. It, it, it's weird. I like Aaron Sorkin, but I don't like Aaron Sorkin, which I know is probably, you know, going to freak everyone out. Um, I don't know. Again, it's just that, like, so take that style of, of dialogue. I think it works so much better in television than I think maybe in narrative features. Um, or I think it just works better when he's not directing. Because I love Steve Jobs. I love Moneyball. Um, I, I like the social network. I don't love it as much as everyone else does. Um, and yeah, the West Wing was great. Uh, the newsroom's fantastic. But um, yeah, just let someone else direct your script, dude please <laughs> yeah that's right just because you can't doesn't mean you should uh, yeah. that sort of thing oh if so, he was bringing uh, something you know magical to the screen as director fine but he's he's making very you know it's a good looking movie a well-made movie it's just someone else could have done it better right so for um next week on sequel cast 2 we'll be looking at the toxic avenger part 3 the last temptation of toxie and uh, oh, yeah. should be should be a good time. So um, you can follow me on Twitter at M-A-T-W-B-T, uh, Thrasher. You can follow me on Twitter uh, at W-T-2-Art. Uh, also, you can uh, shop for my stuff on uh, drivethroughrpg.com. Uh, a lot of stuff I've worked on is available there. This is where it gets this is where it gets dicey. Because you, as you may remember in the previous episode, uh, I... I uh, declared that uh, and I was a trans woman, but again, from my voice, uh, I, I don't make a strong case for that. So now I have two different credits for things on drivethroughrpg.com. Uh, so if you look for Wilhelmina Thrasher, you will find my current output. Uh, and if you look for William Thrasher, you will find my old output. Uh, they're both they're both valid, uh, and the stuff from Skirmisher, I get 
you know, a percentage of either way, but I would prefer that you purchase the stuff that's available from Skirmisher again, because I get a percentage of that. And oh, my uh, my latest output, uh, 100 oddities for an Arcane Academy, still going strong. Very good. And Alex? You can follow me on the Twitter at CrabNebula1914. Um, drop by my YouTube channel, The Trailer Project, for trailer commentaries and experimental, uh, I'll say, experimental short films. Um, it's kind of been in... Uh, standstill right now on account of moving school and life however i'm always eager to get back behind the camera or in front of it in some cases and uh record some fun stuff to post for all the wonderful subscribers out there who i assume might be listening to this as well all right so um for sequel cast two this is matt and this is thrasher and this is alex saying well, if I'm going to go to Japan, I've got to go over these huge mountains. Mutated,